It's great to have Jake here, somebody who's just been a complete pioneer in the nonprofit space. Um, you're really taking the you know some of the hardships that you've had in life and and recognize that other people are having those um, in the veteran space and, and help them and give them new purpose um, with the the movement that you created. So you know it's great to see what you're what you're doing now. I'm happy to have you here. I'm looking forward to, uh, to learning from you and and sharing and having you share with others. Welcome. Yeah, yeah, really appreciate it, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So when you were young, you know, did you always aspire to go to the army to become a Marine? Was that something you were thinking of? Like, how did that passion come about? Yeah, I think it was something that, um, you know, I frequently thought about when I was young. Um, it was something I certainly considered uh, doing after high school in one way or another, whether it was enlisting straight out or going to one of the service academies. Um, but, uh, you know, kind of took a detour. I went to went to college instead, played football, um, but ended up you know, getting into the military upon graduation, um, you know, when I, when I graduated from, from school. And, and did you think that you would, you know, rise all the way to becoming a Marine and, and, and really do well in the sniper oriented program you were in? Did you think that those are things that you kind of like, Hey, I wanted to do this. I'm going to excel at them. Like how did that kind of progression happen? Um, you know, I, I knew I wanted to be in the infantry, um, and I knew I wanted to be a Marine. So I, you know, I chose to enlist into the Marine Corps. I chose the infantry. Um, I don't think I, I joined aspiring to be a sniper, but I, you know, I was a good Marine. I, I, um, performed well overseas and was invited to try out for a sniper platoon and, um, you know, took that opportunity. It was, it was arduous and grueling and all of those things. And sniper school was terrible and hard and all of that. But, you know, I'm glad I did there. It's an elite group. And, uh, you know, I wanted to be among the best. And, and so that's, that's, that's what I joined. Did you have aspirations even before that, like when you were younger to kind of go tie, tie your experiences in or just do like go, go to that path first and then become more entrepreneurial? Was that was it kind of your thinking as well early on? You know, I, I think the part of my life that was military service was born of, um, you know, part mission and in patriotism and in service. But I, I don't, I don't think that I ever saw it as a stepping stone to entrepreneurship. Um, I knew I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't see those two things as connected until, you know, today having started two companies, I can look back and say, yeah, I actually learned how to be an entrepreneur in the Marine Corps. Right. Yeah. And what would you say is like the most valuable skill you learned from your experience being in Iraq, Afghanistan? Like, what would you say is the most important thing you learned? I mean, it's really hard to say it's just one or two or three things. I, you know, when I think about um, who I became as a person, I, the experience certainly opened up my eyes to the world and the hardship faced by people in, in, in other countries and the blessings that we have as Americans that we should never take for granted. Um, as you know, perhaps from a business or an entrepreneurial angle, I mean, countless lessons, um, you know, never give up, you know, understanding how to improvise, adapt and overcome uh, when faced with hardship, um, learning how to innovate with limited resources um, and certainly and then how to lead, you know, how to lead people in tough situations. And that's what entrepreneurship is. You know, it's it's pulling a team together and leading them through one of the most uncertain, chaotic risky environments imaginable. It's not risky in terms of life and death, but it's certainly risky in terms of livelihood. Yeah, I was going to ask you, um, but like in terms of the comparison of like the risk you take every day running a business, is there any kind of like, like, is it comparable at all to a life and death situation, anything like that? It's just not, is it just so far from it removed in terms of your decision making? I mean, you know, the, the stakes are not even close. I mean, we were running sniper missions behind enemy lines in 
probably the most kinetic and violent province of Afghanistan for seven months. Like every night we went outside the wire, it was life and death and, you know, in, in very real terms. Um, so the stakes are different, but the, the presence of risk, the complexity of the risk is, is very similar, right? You know, you talk about what, what's the environment. It's a resource starved environment with limited information, um, a competitive landscape. Now the competitive landscape in software doesn't have guns and IEDs, but you know, they can still spring a surprise on you and, and kind of ambush you and your go to market. So I think one thing that veterans bring to, to business and to entrepreneurship is that they don't fear risk. They respect risk. They understand risk. They can navigate risk. But they don't fear it. And I think that's really a healthy place, a healthy mindset to have when you're trying to build a company. And why did you decide to go the nonprofit route um, for the first, you know, your first major venture in a sense? Like, why not just create like a business that was for profit and capitalize on deploying these volunteers, et cetera? Yeah. So the first company I started when I got out, I started by accident. Um, it was called Team Rubicon. It is called Team Rubicon. It still exists and is thriving today. It, um, I say it started by accident because I had no intention of starting it. Um, it started when I ran a ad hoc response to the Haiti earthquake that kind of snowballed into a movement that I ended up running for 11 and a half years. Um, that movement was a, a global um, disaster response and humanitarian relief organization that recruits, trains, and deploys military veterans. And, you know, I, I don't think we ever envisioned that it would scale to what it became. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said, over the course of 11 years, we, we scaled to 150,000 volunteers. We responded to 1,200 different disasters and crises and, and raised $400 million in philanthropy. So, you know, you kind of look back and you're like, holy hell, what, you know, <laughs> what a ride. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it wasn't by design. Um, and I think that that's where a lot of good entrepreneurial ideas happen. You, you encounter a moment, a situation, a problem, you develop a solution, and then you, you kind of stick around for the ride. Right. And you seem to be so good with Team Rubicon at getting volunteers and recruiting people. Like, what were some of the methods that you used to do that? Uh, you know, we, I'd say there were a couple of things we could credit. One, we had a compelling mission. It was something that people wanted to be a part of because we were creating impact. We were helping people on their worst day. And, and listen, that's an inspiring thing to be a part of. But we were effective. You know, we, we knew that in order to be the best disaster response organization in the world, we had to provide the best volunteer experience in the world. And the best volunteer experience doesn't mean like white glove service. It doesn't mean that everybody's eating steak and lobster at night and sleeping on, you know, a king size bed. In fact, it, for us, it was the opposite. It was like, we need to recreate the hardship. We need to put these people into what the Marine Corps would call the suck but we needed to provide them with the tools that they needed, good leadership, the opportunity to have impact. And if we did that, got them dirty every single day, they were going to come back for more. So that's what we focused on. And then lastly, it was storytelling. Um, you know, how do you, how do you tell a compelling story? And that, you know, I think any entrepreneur also needs to be the chief storyteller of their, of their organization. How do you compel investors or customers to come along for the journey and take a risk alongside you. And, um, you know, we, we tried to become great storytellers early. And what were these like people that, you know, let's just say you, you have somebody who's a veteran that, you know, they have this time on their hands where they, was this like team Rubicon, was that becoming like their main thing that they were doing? Like, 
you know, it seemed to be like they, they were lacking. There's a lot of them. They were lacking a certain purpose. There wasn't any other need. And this was the only need in a sense. I mean, our volunteer base was so diverse. It was unbelievable. You know, we had people that were, uh, you know, retired from the military in maybe their mid fifties, early sixties, all the time in the world. Cause they were collecting that military pension. And so, yeah, they were like professional disaster responders for us. We had other people that, you know, were fully employed, um, earning a paycheck, but would use their PTO to go to a disaster zone and volunteer. And it, you know, it was because in some cases they were looking for purpose. Maybe their day job wasn't doing it for them. Um, you know, in other cases it was just, you know, Hey, I've got this skill set that, that I earned or learned when I was in the military and I want to continue to put it to use and everything in between rich people, poor people, white people, black people, men, women, every race. I mean, it was, it was really remarkable how diverse, um, the backgrounds of our volunteers were. And what do you think set your disaster response apart from maybe other organizations that are out there? I mean, I think part of it was this military efficiency that we brought. Um, you know, we built systems that could scale. Um, we focused on interoperability with existing frameworks and government agencies. Uh, we were committed to, to outcomes. Um, you know, I, I think up until we showed up, uh, volunteers, this concept of volunteers in a disaster zone was almost like a four-letter word. You know, the professionals, the government officials, they, they saw volunteers as like a part of the problem. And we were committed to making volunteering in disaster zones a part of the solution. Yeah. And based on your experience with attracting donors, right, you've raised like over $300 million um, for, for this movement. So what were some of the ways that you went about getting just the average person, maybe a couple dollar donation online? You know, we, we had all sorts of sources. I mean, we raised grassroots money, like you mentioned there. We raised money from billionaire family offices, companies, cause marketing budgets, foundations, and everything in between. The common thread across all of them was storytelling. You know, going back to the same way that we motivated and inspired volunteers is how we motivated and inspired donors. Um, you know, these are people that are investing hard-earned dollars into a cause with no expectation of return. It's a lot different than a VC cutting a check into an early stage startup, right? They know they're not getting their money back. So what do you have to do? You have to, you have to show that their donation creates impact, that it's helping someone tangibly and they need to feel good about that. So, you know, we focused on those things and I think we were good at that. Um, and, uh, you know, proof's in the pudding. We've, we've grown every year, year over year until, you know, this past year we eclipsed a hundred million dollars in, in budget, which is unfathomable to me. Do you think that it's essential for every corporation, whether nonprofit, for-profit, et cetera, to have this purpose behind it? Like, of course, storytelling and this arc is, is important, but to have like a deeper purpose, like what you, what you did with Team Rubicon, do you think that's essential? I think if you want to compete today for today's workforce, Gen Z, millennial uh, employees who, I mean, have demonstrated throughout their young careers that they want to do more than just maximize shareholder value. I think the answer is yes. Uh, people want to be a part of something that is inspiring and, you know, stamping widgets can be inspiring if it, you know, if the widget helps the world, otherwise, you know, how else do you, do you meet those, those employees in that ex that newfound expectation for, for purpose alongside profit? It's, you know, part of the thesis, um, that inspired us to, to start Groundswell two and a half years ago. It's how do you unlock that, that a purposeful employee experience, help them to give back more effectively and efficiently. Um, so we're certainly betting my next company on it. Yeah. 
So it, did, it seemed like you, you took a, there was one point where you became like an impact advisory board member for DocuSign. So kind of taking the purpose driven approach and channeling it towards another corporation. Was it at that point, Jake, that you kind of realized, hey, you know, we should create our own, our own venture for this that we can apply to many different types of businesses with what you mentioned before? Yeah, it was an interesting experience to be on the advisory board at DocuSign at a you know period before they went public um, where their um, you know, their CEO at the time, Keith Kroc, was was really committed to this idea of, of social impact and you know being brought in um, to uh, by this woman, Amy Skeeters Barons, who's kind of a, a legend in this CSR space uh, to help just think through like how does DocuSign quantify the impact that it's having? You know, you, you think about a software company like DocuSign, how many hundreds of millions of trees has it saved over the course of its existence by people not sending physical contracts for signature? I mean, it's it's kind of like unfathomable that the, the, the emissions costs that have been saved by not sending that FedEx envelope across the country for that very same signature. It's, it's really fascinating. Then how do you not just quantify it, but tell that story? tell that story externally to inspire your customers, but also internally so that, again, your employees don't just feel like they're creating widgets, um, digital widgets in this, in this case. So, uh, I mean, that was a, that was an important, I think, period of time for me. And, you know, certainly one that, that I look on as kind of like formative in my understanding of, of corporate social responsibility. And Jake, did you feel that your mission at Team Rubicon was essential, was accomplished and now you wanted to start something different? Or did you kind of like what, what was like the, the catalyst in a sense of wanting to do something different? Because you already established yourself with Team Rubicon. You didn't need to go and maybe create something that was different. Maybe it was just different purpose you wanted or something like that. Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I, I had the, the greatest job in the history of the world running Team Rubicon. It was a, it was a privilege and honor to, to lead it. You know, I'm a big believer, and I, I've said this since day one at Team Rubicon, organizations are just like any living organized organism. They need to be slowly evolving or they're slowly dying. And so that evolution is, is systems and policies and process and culture and all of that, but it's also the people. And, you know, I always felt like there was going to be a time when I wasn't going to, I was going to no longer be the right person to run Team Rubicon. And, you know, maybe somebody would debate. <laughs> there's probably people that would debate I should have stepped away earlier. Um, there's maybe some people that would debate I shouldn't have stepped away when I did. But, you know, we were, we had just gotten through the first year of COVID. I knew that the organization was going to need to fundamentally change in the post-COVID world uh, as we came back to the to offices and things like that. And I just felt like it was the natural uh, departure point. We had a succession plan in place. And, uh, and listen, at the end of the day, I'm also an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur at heart. And I wanted to be an entrepreneur again. I didn't want to just be a CEO. I wanted to be an entrepreneur again. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, you have to reach a point where you, you want to just build something new and, and start over. It's, it's always a, it's always a journey each time. But, um, so you have this, you, you kind of created this like HSA for charity, you know, account. Um, it, what's, what is the main major advantage of structuring it like that for employees? Yeah. So what, what Groundswell's done that's really unique is we've taken uh, a tax advantage giving account that historically have only been available to high net worth clients of wealth management firms. It's something called a donor advised fund. Um, and the mechanics of it don't matter so much that other than we've built a platform that has lowered the cost of providing these. And then what that platform does, we sell to companies, they provide these to their employees. And so each employee gets this charitable giving account. Um, they can channel all of their personal philanthropy through it, but we've automated employers' ability to, to give or match funds into it. So you said HSA for charity. You can also think of it like a 401k for charity. 
it's a, it's a tax advantage vehicle purpose built for retirement health in this case for charitable giving. And so, you know, the platform we've built reduces the administrative burden of running employee giving programs. Uh, it improves the outcomes for nonprofits and, and it's a, just a better experience for employees. And do you just think that there's not enough tools to essentially democratize this, the ease of, of, of these chair of this kind of charitable portion for businesses and for employees? Do you just think that there's not enough tools currently out there or, or is it more the process isn't simple enough? Well, I mean, I'm going to be totally blunt. The existing tools suck. Um, you know, <laughs> 65% of fortune 500 companies have employee giving programs. Uh, most of them are administered through one of three legacy platforms. Those legacy platforms, uh, you know, are administratively burdensome for the corporate admins. They are, I would say, poor experiences for the employees and the nonprofits who are receiving the funds are often waiting 90 to 180 days to get that money. And I experienced this firsthand when I was running Team Rubicon. I can remember hurricanes hitting and we were planning operations and you plan those operations according to what your initial fundraising numbers are. So we'd, we'd be planning and executing these operations four months after the hurricane hit, I'd get a literal stack of checks, hundreds, thousands of checks from employee matching programs, sometimes half a million, a million dollars that was totally unaccounted for because it took so long to reach us. Like that fundamentally changes the operating plan that we have four months after the fact, like there's got to be a better way. So those are the types of things that we're solving for. Has has there been like an approach you guys have thought about for the, right now the current situation in Maui? Well, I mean, first of all, the situation in Maui is horrific, um, yeah. and it's the numbers are probably going to get worse before they get better. Team mm -hmm. Rubicon's, you know, fortunately on the ground. We one of our one of our big donors, longtime supporter um, Bob Parsons, who was the founder of GoDaddy, you know, donated a million dollars to Team Rubicon's efforts. You know, the reality is there's not much right now that non-governmental organizations can do. This is still a, a search and not rescue mission, but search and recovery mission. 75% um, of the search area is yet to be searched. And so uh, organizations like ours are standing by to help with the long-term recovery component of this. But um, unfortunately, there's not much to salvage in that situation. But one of the things that Groundswell tries to do, you, you know, you, you, you see an event like Maui horrific, urgent, and, you know, citizens across America in that moment as they're watching those images on CNN are compelled to want to help. Right. They say, I want to do something. But then in the very next moment, they say, I don't know the first thing about where to give to a wildfire response in Maui or the war in Ukraine or an earthquake in Turkey. And so there's this moment of inspiration and it's followed by this moment of friction. The friction is, I don't actually know what to do. And so that's part of what our app with Groundswell solves for is, you know, we can immediately put up a portfolio of causes that we know are on the ground. And, you know, with a you know, tap of a thumb, an employee or a donor can send funds directly to a qualified vetted charity that, again, we know is doing work on the ground. And so you eliminate that friction in the experience. You eliminate the excuses not to, not to act in that moment of inspiration. Do you think that, like... You know, when it, like when a disaster like Maui, the whole situation there occurs, right? Like, what what's the the quickest way to go and funnel that from people that have these emotions and they feel like that they feel you know horrible for it? What's the quickest way to funnel them if maybe they don't know about the Groundswell app or if they you know are unaware of of the right way? Because there's a lot of people. There's probably a huge market out there, Jake, of individuals that haven't necessarily been able to donate yet because they're still unaware. Is that just through more ads and et cetera? 
Well, listen, I, I think, you know, everybody should know that there's like some really easy um, ways to like identify a good place to send your money. There's good national organizations who are likely going to be on the ground. Team Rubicon is one of them. Red Cross, Salvation Army, they, they generally do good work. But if you want to go someplace that's more local, and again, Team Rubicon is unique because it's a national organization that's ultimately local. We've got 1,000, 3,000 volunteers in Hawaii, so we're local to Hawaii. But you look at what's the community foundation. So where, you know, donate to the Maui Community Foundation. They will know the local players to distribute those funds to. And donate to the local food bank, right? You know, disasters like this exacerbate social issues. So if somebody was already hungry before this wildfire, guess what? They're hungrier now. If somebody was already experiencing domestic violence before this disaster, guess what? Like their household just got a lot more violent. So, you know, anything that that is local that was delivering services beforehand, just plow more money in because their services are going to be needed fivefold from before the disaster. And why do you think that your purpose is so intertwined with with both these different businesses? Like, is it just because of the experiences you had when you were abroad or other things you experienced when you were like a child? Like, why do, why do you think that this is kind of your purpose of, you know, helping other people, this kind of volunteer oriented, charity oriented work? I never, I never expected to be in this line of work, to be honest. You know, again, I, I knew I wanted to serve in the military. I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I never thought I'd be an entrepreneur that was focused on the social impact space. But my time overseas certainly shaped my worldview. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I, I saw the impact of things like poverty on the rise of extremism in young men. I saw the impact of um, uh, radical ideology on young women um, and, and everything in between. And so I think... You know, I, I, I understand that we have a role uh, to play in this world to make it better for the people that are less fortunate than we are. And that you know, that's everybody from Afghanistan to Albany, New York. Right. Um, we can all we can all do something. Um, I'm lucky that I, you know, get to earn a paycheck in, a, in something that is purposeful. Um, not everybody's that fortunate, but like everybody can do something. Do you think there are new technologies like that you're looking at, like maybe like blockchain, for example, that could streamline certain processes of donations or maybe make it easier for, um, you know, like maybe there's certain in places that people would like to fund from that could use cryptocurrency to fund? Like, have you kind of been exploring some of these new technologies and like what would you say are some of them that you've looked at you're looking at implementing? Yeah, you know, we've always been tried to be on the leading edge of, of innovation, both at Team Rubicon, obviously here at Groundswell. Team Rubicon was one of the first NGOs to take crypto. We took a $75,000 crypto donation back in 2013, which we probably should have sat on because it would have been worth a lot more. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, listen, I think that there are opportunities there. Um, some interesting applications for blockchain that have been explored in the humanitarian space, specifically around um, validation of resourcing and supply chains, uh, which I think, you know, are interesting applications, like being able to validate who has what uh, is is really critical early in the planning process for complex disasters. You know, when you think about, um, you know, groundswell, um, you know, crypto has been up and down, uh, you know, recent crypto winner, all that stuff. Uh, we've looked at some integrations with uh, things like the giving block, which allows people to donate cryptocurrency. And so if you've got someone who's sitting on some highly appreciated cryptocurrency, I don't know if those people exist anymore or not, but, um, you know, certainly there's some, some significant tax implications to donating that cryptocurrency um, and taking the full value of that write off against your cost basis. Um, so all things that we're, we're, we're evaluating. And do you think that there's any like, 
you know, do you think like ChatGPT can can help disrupt this area and maybe streamline the ability for donations to be to be given? Like, do you think like where do you think where do you see an angle for that technology to be applied to this area? I mean, absolutely. I you know, I think one of the things I've observed is that people are intimidated by philanthropy. They don't know where to start. Um, and so, you know, getting smart about some prompts into something like, uh, you know, ChatGPT, Bard, what have you, and saying like, hey, I really care about uh, animals, specifically Himalayan cats, and I would prefer to invest in organizations that have uh, smaller budgets so that my, my gift is more meaningful. I happen to live in Los Angeles, but I often travel to Topeka, Kansas. And I would love to support an organization run by a minority female. Like, okay, like, cool. Like you probably get an answer in 10 seconds on that. Whereas you, you know, you'd be looking forever to try to find something that, that meets those criteria. So I think there are some interesting applications um, for people to explore. And, you know, you've done a bunch of different things throughout your career so far. Like, do you, you know, where do you see the next 10 years playing out? Do you see like yourself building up Groundswell? You know, do you see yourself doing a different venture during that time? Like, what do you kind of think is next? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I remain chairman of the board of Team Rubicon. I'm excited to stay, you know, involved with that organization through the next decade. Um, you know, with Groundswell, um, you know, we're thinking about the next 10 months. You know, how do we position the company to go raise uh, the money we need to raise to get to the next level? Um and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't afford myself the luxury of thinking about life after groundswell. Um, I've got to make this work and I've got to do it without, you know, letting my family down. So I've got some important things to balance. That's, that's really all I can think about. Percent. Well, I mean, that's all the questions I had here, Jake. I appreciate you coming on. I think you have an incredible story and you really, you've, done, you've really created a movement um, and materialized a movement that was existing in a sense. So it's, it's great to, you know, to see that what you've done and I'm excited for what you'll accomplish next. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for telling the story.